Hello, and welcome to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Barlman. If you are new to tuning in, this show is for native plant enthusiasts, aspiring gardeners, suburban homeowners, growers, and thinkers anxious to learn more about growing Native American plants and creating habitat for wildlife. If this sounds like you, you've come to the right place. In today's episode, Native Edible Plants Part 3, Nuts, Blossoms, and Fruits, we chat with Bob Henriksen from the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum about rabbit holes, unripe black walnut liqueur, and even more native plants to add to your edible garden. Thanks for listening. Hey. Hey, hey, hello. Well, it's great to have you here again today, Bob. I'm excited because this is a little bit different than the stuff we've been covering so far. No doubt. Um, now, really quick, um, in case someone's jumping in and they haven't already listened to some of our previous conversations, I wanted to give you some time just to mention really quick what you do for the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum. But um, I also wanted to bring up, because I got this in the mail yesterday, uh, a membership form where people can sign up and actually get a membership to the Statewide Arboretum and you can help contribute to some of the great things that NSA does. 15 schools got free bloom box gardens. I mean, so much cool stuff is being done right now by the NSA. Uh, in the letter, it looks like just last year, um, the funding to the NSA planted 15,000 plants, trees, and shrubs. Is that right? Uh, plants in the ground this last year was 45,000. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. <laughs> and that that probably the the number you were reading was probably uh like through grants, maybe. So maybe a little blooper on there. Maybe they thought it included everything and it actually didn't. It's bigger. Yeah, wow. just the just the trees alone was uh the number I'm seeing here is forty nine hundred. If you guys didn't happen to get this in the mail, um you can go online to plantnebraska.org and, and find the details because it's a really great program. And then if you ever shop at any of the sales um, that the NSA has at their greenhouse or the spring affair event, you get a discount on the stuff that you're going to buy anyway. So I want yes. to bring that up. So yeah, really the easiest way to connect with us is obviously to become a member. Then you learn about all these cool events that are coming up and um, you stay connected. And of course you support a great organization that's literally planting Nebraska because we are all over the state. Mm -hmm. Gosh, if Nebraska's 300 plus communities, uh, we've at least reached, I think the numbers at like 250 that have received uh, pass through grants from us to do landscaping projects. When you plant trees in a community, plant uh, pollinator gardens, prairie gardens, things like that, um, it shows the community and, and the citizens of the community, we don't plan on going anywhere because trees are all about hope, right? Trees are all about the future. And uh, a well landscaped town, as you drive through, says, "Huh, you know, I think I'd, I could make a home here. I think I could live here." Mm. You know, it just sends a message. Oh, well, and it's the gift that keeps on giving. You know, like some of these right. trees that are really long lived, they live a hundred years or so. Right. Exactly. Bob, um, tell us a little bit about what you do there. Yeah. So my job is I, I'm the horticulturist here at the Statewood Arboretum, kind of the jack of all trades type thing when, when you wear a horticulturist hat. And that's just um, so I, I mainly am a grower. And so I grow uh, perennials, trees, shrubs, uh, native grasses, things like that. We order plants in as well to meet the demand. 
and uh, we're building a new greenhouse. Yay. And thanks to our supporters mm. for, for stepping up to the plate and getting that built. Uh, not built yet, so it's making me a little nervous with November breathing us down the neck. But I don't start production until late February anyway. So we're, we're, we're good to go for now. <laughs> yeah, I heard about that new greenhouse just yesterday. Um, now, because I remember the one you guys were using before was a bit of a drive, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, I was up near Mead, Nebraska. University has property up there. Oh, yeah, yeah. So today we're talking about native nuts, blossoms, and fruits, um, which just yeah. sounds so fun already. Um, hmm. And I looked some of these up in case anyone's wondering where I gleaned some of my info I'm providing. Um, I've been reading Daniel Mormon's Native American Ethnobotany which is a tome if you ever saw one. Um, but it's really nice because there's so many detailed uh, pieces of information on all these different plants, whether it's medicinal uses or food uses that, um, you know, basically what's been historically done by, by Native American tribes. Um, so it's really, really great information. If you're nerdy about it, like we are, um, it's going to take you all winter long to get through it. And even then you might still have some more to pick through. We're just talking about edible uses um, in this yeah. series, but maybe in the future, um, our podcast will also explore a lot of the medicinal stuff too. Amen. Well, you know, and you bring up a good point, Stephanie, anything we're talking about today, culinarily speaking I mean, food is medicine. That's where the statement comes from, right? Mm. Is we all need to eat eat more healthy. We all know that, right? You know, if you start including native fruits and nuts in your diet, uh, my oh my, you know, and then like you said, fall down that rabbit hole, learning more about, you know, are these things good for you? Yeah. And then getting creative in how you harvest and store them and use them, you know, because you can only make so much jelly, right? <laughs> and I mean, so. this is this is a good inspiration to plant these things you know if some of these things intrigue you and you've got room for a tree or you've got room for a large uh you know fruit producing shrub this is a good incentive to get those things in your garden so that in a few years time you can have some food stuff to harvest and it not only is it free because you're growing it yourself um but then you get all all the other habitat benefits that it provides and, and things like that so I put together a little list today. Um, I tried not to go too overboard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's Um, tough. But uh, the first one on my list is American hazelnut. Uh Uh, So Corliss Americana. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm saying that correctly. It looks like the nut meats are the thing that are harvested. So the Iroquois I read, they crushed and mixed the nut meats with bread or maybe they mixed it into hominy or mashed potatoes even, which sounded intriguing. And then I read that the Ponca, Winnebago, and Omaha tries, tribes used this as a body for soup. So it looks like it's a pretty mm-hmm. versatile nut. Uh, could you tell us what you know about it? Yeah, it is a versatile nut. And, and you know, as you were talking about people planting these things in your yard, folks, we were never were talking about planting these things in your yard back in the 80s. You know, and if you go even further back in time when people were planting shrub borders, it was like a row of lilacs, right? Or they did a row of those, those spireas or, you know, now they're doing rows of hydrangeas uh, that has replaced that with, you know, the hydrangeas are everywhere. But now there's kind of a little bit more of a movement so you can have a shrub border, i.e., you bet you can't be afraid of big plants. You know, these 
American hazelnut, for example, does have a potential to get, oh gosh, I've seen them up there 15 feet, but I've also seen shrubs that stayed around six to eight for many, many decades. So um, that kind of puzzles me. Why do some stay shorter than others? I think it depends on how much water they're getting and, you know, how rich the soil is. If it's a tough site, you know, that type of thing. But the thing about the American hazelnut is it's so tough. I mean, this thing can grow in full sun to pretty much full shade. I've seen it out in our native woods, mainly in the southeastern part of the state. So you'll find it at places like, uh, you know, uh, Nebraska City area south to Richardson uh, in, in Fall City, and then a little bit to the east, but not much. Um, again, uh, tough shrub. That's one reason to go. It's a thicket shrub, so it's going to have mm. multiple stems on it. Uh, not a single stem, but multiple stems. So it forms a nice dense thicket. So you'll get songbirds nesting in it. So it's good habitat. Nice. Um, and, and the fall color is what I like most about it. It's it's fall color. It's one of the first to color up like the sumac. Mm. Uh, you just don't see it in the road ditches like you do sumac, right? So it's not one that's just all over the place. So we got to change that planting in our landscapes. Yeah, but the fall color is usually a kaleidoscope. I've seen them in shadier conditions get more, oh, greenish purple. You know, not not a loud fall color, but once you get about in the full sun, I've seen yellow, orange, and red all in the same plant. Kind of a kaleidoscope, if you will, and uh, really pretty. And again, one of the first to color up, so it says "Hello Fall." You know, which you know, a day like today, you know, it's brisk mm -hmm. out there today. So. We're all kind of reminded it's right here. So that's one attribute. Um, uh, its stems are attractive, even in the wintertime, I think, is a, a shrub. And it has the what we call catkin flowers. And catkins oh, nice. are, yeah, you know, those mm. dangly, people describe them as dangling tarantulas, dangling from the bare branches in the wintertime. I don't know if it quite looks like a tarantula up in your tree. But uh, <laughs> I've heard them also described as tinsel hanging up in the branches. Mm -hmm. Um uh, they're cool. Just uh, if you're interested, just look up images of catkin flowers uh, on hazelnuts. But anyway, in the wintertime, they're kind of short and stubby. But then in the spring, early spring, we're talking March, uh, late February, March, depending on the spring. So it's a harbinger of spring to say it's here mm -hmm. uh, or right around the corner, at least. These things elongate. And Stephanie, I've seen the catkins elongate to around, oh, gosh, four to five inches. So then it really does look like tinsel. And if you shake the branches, mm. you can see the pollen come off. Love it. Uh, so it's a wind pollinated plant. So you need more than one to produce nuts. And I've asked the fellow who's a hazelnut expert here in Nebraska with the Nebraska Forest Service, uh, Aaron Clare, uh, who's working on hybrid hazelnut that we can talk about here. Um, he said, you know, can I, a lot of people don't have room for three hazelnuts. I told him, can I plant three of them semi-close together and they just come up, become one big unit. And he said, for sure, you know, like three feet apart, something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. But to get to its full size, you'd space them more like eight, 10 feet apart. Right. And they would, they would certainly fill that space. Mm -hmm. um, so you got your spring catkin flowers and then uh, I think attractive summer foliage. And then uh, later on in the year, it'll form these clusters of uh, fruit. And then, but honestly, Stephanie, growing them in landscapes, the birds usually beat the humans to them because, <laughs> uh, and squirrels, the squirrels will take them green. Um, I've heard from people, but yeah, it's a very nutritious nut, high in oil, um, you know, so yeah, Native Americans utilizing it for soup, no doubt it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a good nut for soup.
Well, it makes um, sense then if they're small, makes sense that they would they would crush the nut meat that was inside and mix it with other things. Like it was more of a right. supplemental food as opposed to like a standalone sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Just uh, worth harvesting, uh, but not in huge abundance, you know. Gotcha. And, you know, obviously, like you noted, uh, the animals might beat us to it. So it might be. Right more of like a, i'm lucky if I, if i get some <laughs> but, but i think yeah that's one of the better uses for it hazelnut cake uh i've made it before it is the bomb and Kay young has a recipe in her book which we often refer to on this podcast oh yeah yeah for hazelnut cake so so in other words if you buy them at the store you know hopefully down the road here folks as the forest services hazelnut crop grows and they're harvesting they'll make these available for local stores but stay tuned for that. Yeah, for sure. Um, the next one is kind of a similar situation. So shag bark hickory. Uh, is it pronounced caria? Caria ovada? Yeah, caria. Uh-huh. Caria. Um, mm-hmm. And it's the same kind of situation where historically tribes would use the nut meats and mix into bread crushed. Um, I read several tribes used hickory chips to make sugar. Do you know anything about that? Sounds like a painstaking process. Hickory chips? Yeah. I don't know if it's yeah. like a boiling process or... Yeah, so so another thing folks can look up, and you're not going to hurt the trees, so shagbark hickory goes native in Wabunzi and Indian Cave, and I have some where I harvested them today. There's nut trees here on campus that were planted as a nut orchard. And the shell bark hickories will also exfoliate. So we call this exfoliating bark. If you Google images of shag bark hickory, you'll see that bark and that that weird platey shaggy bark that's basically not quite even attached to the tree, right? And you can kind of break that bark off without damaging the tree. You don't want to necessarily, you know, pull it away from the tree and pull the fresh bark off, right? Mm. You just kind of snap it off. And then you break them into one inch pieces. So that's the chips you're you're reading about, hickory bark chips. You take it home and you scrub it really well. Um, After you wash and dry and break them into chips, you bake them in the oven and that kills any bacteria or anything, right? So you're breaking them in the oven at like 350 degrees for however long, an hour or something, maybe not that long, but that starts to get the oils going in in the bark. And then you boil it. So it's a process. Yeah. And then you add sugar to it to make it sweet and then crank up the heat so it becomes syrupy, you know, for that syrup temperature. So like making a simple syrup. Hickories have a, a an awesome history too. Um, if we have time here, uh, I'd like to talk about here eventually a Cherokee dish that was very uh, well known. It's a hickory nut soup. So if you okay. just Google hickory nut soup, folks, and uh, I have a ball in the freezer as we speak that I made last year, and it's uh, called a canucci, a canucci ball. So um, you pound it, gosh, see, so that's what I'm thinking they did with the hazelnuts. They probably pounded shell and all, and there's a way when you mm. cook it that, to separate out because the nut meat gets pound uh, ground up, you know, so, so there's really no... Uh, body to the nut meat anymore and then so if you pound it that way and you cook it the shells sink to the bottom 
and um, the hickory nut meat becomes part of the soup. So then you can strain it out that way, you see. So you're not, you know, because I think as us uh, Anglo-Saxons envision, geez, Louise, what they do spend hours cracking those things, you know, no, they mm. they they had easy methods to do this. And the Kanuchi ball is the same way. The challenge we have most of most anybody listening is where the heck am I going to get hickory nuts? You know, you can order them online, but they're expensive, right? And so very few people. Hickory nuts, uh, the, the one I was harvesting today is called shellbark hickory, also called king nut hickory. I think, in my opinion, it's the king of nuts. And um, there's a lot of different nut trees out there, folks. Why is it the king? To me, it's a pecan uh met a black walnut and they had a baby and the baby was the as far as the flavor goes um it's it's unique it's earthy it's you know a delicious nut first of all mm. so we need to have those grown all over the place in in public spaces as well as people's landscapes the challenge again is you need more than one uh to to cross pollinate with the tree because you're you it'll form nuts but the nuts are hollow they they won't um mm they won't pollinate. So you need a cross pollination occurring. But if everybody would have a hickory tree in their yard, we'd have cross pollination all over, all over the city. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's my dream, man. And shell bark, I'm telling you, it is a big nut. We're talking this, you know, once you take the husk off uh, an inch across shag barks, half the size of a shell bark. And the reason I'm touting shell bark, Stephanie, is because when we think of hickory, everybody thinks of shag, Appropriately so, the shaggy bark of a shag bark hickory is native to Nebraska. Uh, the uh, that and bitternut, and shag bark is native again to the southeast quadrant, kind of three counties: um, Richardson, Nemaha. Um, gets up into Omaha. There's native shag barks in the Omaha in the city itself, uh, in the, some of the wild areas there in Omaha. Um, anyway. Uh, so yeah, it's it's what's harder the, to harvest. What's the nativity on the the shell bark? Because that's I didn't look that one up today. I looked up the shag bark. Yeah, is the good shell question. bark native. It is not quite native to Nebraska, but Mandrew borders plants didn't. Yeah, if you go south of Kansas, about a half hour, uh, and just over the border into Missouri, it's Nevada, Missouri, and then in southeast Kansas. Um, I've actually seen the trees down there, uh, native shell bark. So it gets into Southeast Kansas, just South of Kansas city and points East, you know, kind of the Ozarks. It's an Ozark tree down in Kentucky, Tennessee, yada, yada. Okay. And, but, but we found it's perfectly hardy in Nebraska, certainly from, mm -hmm. from the Platte river South and from all city West to Kearney, I would, I would not hesitate to plant a, a shell bark. But my, I grew up in Dodge, Nebraska, which is uh, just uh, north and west of Fremont, about 30 minutes. And we planted shell bark and shag bark and bitternut in Dodge Park. And all three of them are doing just fine. Mm -hmm. The more the merrier. It's an awesome tree, worthy of growing. They're, they're, they have a reputation as being slow growing. That's one of the reasons you don't see them in the trade. And they have a tremendous tap root. So they're very drought tolerant because of that. And once you get them in the landscape, they take off, you know, I mean, they'll grow a foot, foot and a half uh, a year and, and do just fine. So anyway, back to they're they're incredibly nutritious, um, have a lot of the, the good fat that we're looking for. 
But this hickory soup recipe, this uh, kanuchi that I made uh, is like a pureed nut soup. And then they would add things to it like hominy, uh, maybe some uh, sweet potato, things like that, you know, mm. and it's it's rich. It's nutty. It, it was a it very much a tradition. And there's still some indigenous folks, specifically the Cherokee, that are keeping that tradition alive and still make kanuchi today. Nice. It's really interesting. Um, it sounds like a great fall soup. So it's kind of perfect that we're talking about this recipe right now because it's very seasonally relevant. Exactly. Very seasonally relevant. Interesting. I'll look into that some yeah. more because I thought that was cool. And I mean, these bar these nuts from the hickory, they they can be eaten plain, right? Like with with honey or just plain eaten raw. Oh. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you can eat them raw. What you need to do with any nut is you cure it. You'd have to do this with hazelnuts, black walnuts, whatever you're collecting. You want to cure it. If you just pull it off the tree, take the husk off, crack it, knead it like that, you're going to kind of shrug your shoulders and go, yeah, whatever. There's a lot of moisture in that nut yet. So you, curing it just means drying it. Mm. And because the nut you buy in the store has already been cured, meaning it's been dried. And most nuts, you know, a month is safe. So you keep it in a, in a dry location, you know, uh, 70 plus degrees, 70, 80 degrees if you can. You know, I'll put it on the back patio in the fall just to make sure and cover it with something because squirrels will literally chew a hole in whatever you have to get access to those things. I've seen it done. <laughs> if I have a wimpy container, they'll chew a hole right through it. Um, anyway. Yeah, you let them cure. And then if I cracked that nut and had you try it, you'd go, oh, I see what you mean. It concentrates the oils, the flavor, concentrates yeah. the flavors. Mm -hmm. um, and then roasted hickory nuts, Stephanie, uh, you can top on anything. I mean, you could top it on a salad. You could top it on, you know, any sort of crunch you want in that recipe you're making, right? Just like any nut. That sounds um, great. And hickory nut pie, my, I'm known for my hickory nut pie by my friends and... Uh, they say it's the best ever. And I like making a triple nut pie. So that's a triple nut is pecan, black walnut, and hickory nut pie, uh, all three combined. So you just follow a pecan pie recipe and and just use a third of the pecans. And I, I have all three in my freezer as well, we speak now, <laughs> from last year. I, I have not yet become familiar with black walnut being edible to us i know that squirrels love black walnut right oh man but, but i yeah. didn't know we could eat them That's oh yeah cool. so yeah <laughs> i don't know if you did you want to talk about black walnuts next sure yeah let's just throw it in there oh my my oh my stephanie because it's a rabbit hole plant you need to get to know up and down in and out because because black walnut like the hickory like the hazelnut is overlooked and unutilized most people just kind of thumb their nose up to a black walnut, right? Oh, it's got juglone. It kills all these plants underneath it. And then yeah. no, only non-natives. Most all native plants have um, that have grown nat naturally amongst black walnuts and around them uh, don't have a problem wow. with juglone. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen many plants growing underneath walnuts that have no problem with them. So let, don't let that worry you. So you can actually harvest a walnut later on in the year while the husks are still green and you can dent a walnut, it's ready to go. So I can harvest it and wait. You want to not wait until it turns black because those husks oh. have a ton of tannins in them. 
and those tannins will get into the nut meat and make it very bitter because most people are either you love them or you hate them for black walnuts. I happen to love them, but I've also learned from the Nut Growers Association that I've been harvesting them too late. You want to get them when the husks are green turning to yellow. Mm. So if you harvest these husks early or the walnut early and you just roll it under your foot, that husk comes right off the nut. And then you have to clean the nuts Mm. and cure them and access the nut meat after that. The nut meat, if I remember right, has more beneficial carbohydrates than any other nut on the planet. So it's incredibly good for you. That's something you could forage right in your own town. And believe you and me, if you knock on a neighbor's door um, <laughs> uh, and ask them if they mind if you harvested black walnuts, they'd say, please do. Yeah. Because most people, <laughs> most people don't know that they make an, an amazing product. There's another one that I've made before that mine's going right now. It's called Nochino, and that's N-O-C-I-N-O. So if you know, uh, if you, does that sound Italian? Yes, it is, Nochino. And Nochino is an Italian liqueur, and that's made from green walnuts. So in the summertime, these little okay. developing walnuts are only about an inch. And I challenge you, Stephanie, to pluck one off a tree in the summertime in early June, early to mid-June, and smell it. It smells lemony, um, very citrusy almost. And they would uh, basically take those green walnut holes and tincture them in vodka or pure grain alcohol or something like that. And because black walnuts stain everything black, sure enough, this tincture turns very black in color. And you let the green walnuts sit in there for Oh, gosh, I think it's up to a year. No, it's only like six weeks. You take them out and then you add things like coffee beans, cinnamon, lemon zest um, and add that for a number of weeks. And then you strain that out and then you let it sit. I think it takes a year, maybe two. Uh, A good Nochino will be resting for two years and then it becomes a liqueur. And the reason it rests is the tannins mellow over time. So it has a rich flavor and you can actually look up uh, recipes. Like it's a, it's a high end, high dollar thing to those, those, those high end bars in New York city. There's a, there's a great uh, uh, website I've told you about before on this uh, called forager chef. Mm -hmm. He's got a great recipe for uh, that. Wow. uh, I'll look that up. Yeah. So it's, it's, so it's basically a bitter and bitters are used. What do you call a, a fancy drink maker? They have a title. I can't remember what they're called, uh, but they will use just a little bit of bitters in a, in a fancy drink to make, to enhance it. And that's what Nochino is used for. Um, okay. Yeah. And I actually, it's interesting that we ended up talking about black walnut when maybe we didn't originally plan to, because um, I've been studying native dye stuff. So native plant material to use to make dye stuff and dye, um, you know, basically any any kind of fabric or material, or if you got a crafting project where you want to make a DIY prairie tablecloth or whatnot. Um, and I read that you can harvest the green hull of the black walnut and it acts as both a mordant and a dye because of the tannins 
Um, you know, that's why wine stains, you know, when, when you spill wine on your shirt, it's hard to get the stain out because the wine actually has a lot of tannins in it. And the tannin yeah. is what makes it adhere so much to the fabric and also makes it a really potent dye. Amen. Um, Doesn't so, yeah, fade, that's, right? Yeah. It's fascinating. <laughs> so another versatile uh, yeah. tree and maybe one that people yeah. view negatively that maybe should have a second look taken at it for all its its usefulness. You know, it's a plant you can experiment with too and see yeah. what kind of uses you enjoy getting out of it. Yeah. Um, the next one, let's see, what did I have planned next? So I have written down Eastern Redbud, which mm -hmm. um, you can use both pods and the flower blossoms from it. I, I just love this plant for its looks um, to begin with. It's it's an early bloomer. Um, it's a great understory tree. So So this can grow in a dappled shade sort of situation, no problem. It's a very stately ornamental tree. Um, which explains why there's so many cultivars in the trade of it. Um, but I do not know personally very much about its edibility. So maybe you can fill in there. Yeah, sure. And, and, and honestly, about all I've done is snacked on the flowers before. But uh, the flowers, uh, you know, everybody's going, you want me to eat those beautiful flowers? Well, usually there's enough to go around, right? Um, and, and getting them young, because uh, redbud flowers will persist for quite a while, right? Uh, unlike a crab apple, it seems to like, you know, take a week. So you can get them in the bud stage, believe it or not. And sometimes you've seen redbuds where those where those flower clusters are right on the trunk itself. Maybe you've seen that before too. Mm -hmm. um, but but observe redbud flowers up close next time when it's blooming. And I challenge you to say, oh, wait, uh, Stephanie and Bob are saying they're edible okay, here goes nothing and give it a try. <laughs> so you can basically just break off a cluster, pop it into your mouth and try it. I've heard it described as, uh, you know, it's nothing exciting, mind you. It's like eating a green bean, but yet it has this citrusy mm. kind of aftertaste, right? It, it's uh, where you're like, oh, no, not bad. So you'll sample a few more. So again, you can, you can use it you know, uh, to color up a dish, right? Say you're having a salad and you're having guests mm -hmm. over and, you know, or you just do your own meal, whatever. Uh, you know, it's not like you're going to harvest, you know, a gallon bucket of these and, and utilize them. However, you sure could. Um, I've, I've not done this before, but um, like you would do capers. What are capers, folks? Oh, yeah, yeah. Capers are just flower buds. I don't know the plant that they use to make capers that we all love, but capers are expensive in the store. You can make capers out of uh, red bud buds. So if you just type in uh, red bud flower capers, you will see a recipe on how to make that. And it's just basically a a, uh, a vinegar, right? You're you're yeah, pickling oh, them, basically. pickling them exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's that's the best way to preserve them. Um, yeah. And then as you said, those, those pods then form after the flowers. So, okay. You can use part of that harvest season just for the flowers. Right. And then later on it, it develops those looks like a snap pea, doesn't it? It looks like a pea, a pea flowers. Um, those I've never tried them, um, uh, raw, uh, quite honestly, folks, I've never even, I, I've never cooked with them yet. Um, but it's on my bucket list. You want to get the pods when they're young. 
And uh, because I think when they get a little older, they're they're tougher and chewier, certainly still edible, but not necessarily palatable. So I do have to read up a little bit more on on the young seed pods. Um, but but apparently they're very nutritious, too. Um, mm. So, oh, oh, another thing I forgot too the leaves. So, okay, so first you got the flowers before the pods are forming, you got the leaves coming on, right? Mm. And those leaves coming on. Um, so if you notice a plant when it emerged, the leaves are emerging in the spring, once the leaves are all the way leafed out, it has that dark green color, but the tips of the branches often have a leaf that almost looks shiny and translucent, right? If you put your finger behind it, you could see through the leaf. You know what I'm talking about, Stephanie, when I say that? I don't, but that intrigues me. <clears throat> You'll so see that on that. a lot of trees. You'll see that on lindens, for example. Linden leaves are edible, for example, but you want to get them when they're at that translucent stage because they get bitter uh, later on in the season. If a leaf tasted good all year long, everything would defoliate them. So, so plants put bitter compounds in them so you don't want to eat as much of it. Uh-huh. So so you're saying uh, before the flower buds form, basically when when the new growth is being put on and we have these very young leaves. Exactly. And it's in this translucent leaf stage, the leaves are edible. That's what you're saying? Right. Exactly. Mm. Bingo. Yeah, they're great in salads. Yeah, in salads you would use them. Or you could like a a finished thing in, in a stir fry. Um, and as the leaves grow, they're better suited for soups and bras, meaning you can still use them, uh, but you would just use them in, in a cooked dish like that where you're utilizing. And there again, I, I, I can't tell you what they taste like, right? Do they just taste green? Um, that, uh, again, is just, uh, it's one of those things on my, on my bucket list. Oh, and one other thing about the flowers, you can dry the flowers and they're beautiful in things like granola over yogurt nice. and topped on and topped on devil so picture you have dried flowers and you're going to a potluck in the winter time and you're making deviled eggs i'm seeing this recipe online where they top the deviled eggs with those dried pink flowers and some oh sprinkles of chives no and it way. looks so like, like totally ah. pretty <laughs> i love deviled eggs so anything to make fancy deviled eggs uh so i'm gonna have to harvest and dry a bunch because the flowers stay pink and uh and then you use them how cool is that yeah and i'd imagine you know we have a dehydrator so i'd imagine if you you know you collect the little buds or the flowers or whatnot and you dry them they'll last quite a while dry i don't oh, know for how sure. long but quite a while for sure. yeah you know you can you could certainly make red bud jelly as well there's a recipe online for red bud jelly red bud cordial again that's made with the flowers yeah wonderful oh well even even more reasons to have a red bud because it's it's a beautiful versatile plant and has uh endless uses apparently so another reason to have one in your garden <laughs> so we, we talked about the pods but get this we're not done yet the seeds okay so later on in the season when that when the pods turn brown and you see them like right now dangling up in the tree like sometimes they'll be thick on a tree stephanie but they're not always filled you know you got to kind of check does it have a little seed in there and the seed that's inside those pods, sometimes there'll be three, sometimes four seeds per pod. And what I do is just pulse it in the blender and the seeds come free of the pods. And, mm-hmm. and the the, uh, the pods, 
uh, float and the seeds sink so you can separate them very easily. And uh, then you have all those seeds. Well, why do I want those seeds? They're the size of a lentil. So you can cook them up that way and, and use them like you would use lentils. Um, you can grind them into a powder and use them as that. Um, and get this, I've read they are 25% protein. And so if you, if you know, red buds, birds will eat those seed pods. They'll, they'll go after those seed pods. And for a reason, uh, they're after that, that protein rich. Yeah, uh, no way. Okay. Well, uh, that's surprising. I didn't know that. Right. Isn't that that's wild? Amazing. I didn't either. That's, you know, when I started digging into doing these talks on wild edibles, you know, I would run down a rabbit hole, every darn plant I would look up because yeah, I'd yeah. be like, oh. I heard red bud flowers are edible. And then I was like, ah, oh, the pods are too. And, oh, wait, oh, the seeds are too. Oh, and the leaves are too. It'll, it never stops. You know, the more we go down this, I mean, it's like, I, I kind of, I'm almost angry. I almost feel like it's not fair that I right. don't have more time or like two more of me. Cause I would just send one out to like endlessly forage all the right. time and just bring right. home spoils. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> well, I okay. right on. So, There's not a day that goes by that you can't forward something. I know. And, yeah. you know, a lot of times for us gardeners, you know, a day goes by very quickly because right. we're trying to do so many, you know, we've got too many things going on. And so by the time, right. by the time <laughs> we get to something, it's, it's already too late. Um, right. Now this next, uh, this next one, we can talk about planes and twist spine prickly pear i know absolutely nothing about prickly pear so i'm kind of relying on what i've read and, and on you for information so in oh, this yeah. in this book this ethnobotany book um that i've read i i saw that the navajo would dry um dry the prickly pear fruit or they would even eat it raw um, and I read that the Cheyenne would dry the pulp and use it to thicken soups and stews. Um, that's for the Plains um, prickly pear. The Navajo, I guess, uh -huh. use the twist spine prickly pear. Uh, fast, I mean, fascinating that a prickly pear is native to Nebraska, uh, but right. even even cooler that it's it's got edible fruit. Oh, yeah. You know, from what I understand, the, the fruit is tasty. I have... You can pluck them off. They have what those little tiny cactus spines on a cactus are called glaucids, G-L-O-C-H-I-D-S. Glaucids uh, are these tiny little hair-like spines that are annoying if you get them stuck to your fingers because they're hard to see, right? And 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 they still hurt and stick you. Mm -hmm. But if you can grab those little fruits and the fruits are very pretty. If you Google prickly, big root prickly cactus fruits, uh, you'll see they, they turn a nice rich uh, red color, like a purplish red. And uh, if you cut those open they, and look inside, it's a very pretty purple kind of glistening with for moisture. And you just kind of suck the pulp and the seeds out all together. And just kind of like you would a watermelon, you're working that that juice around the seeds and then you spit the seeds out, right? Mm. And uh, it's it's like a strawberry meets, it's hard to describe. It's a unique flavor, but it was just a snack item mostly. And I'm sure you could harvest a bunch to dry. Nowadays, foragers will harvest uh, prickly pear fruit. Gosh, I've read where you can make wine and, and my wife, Pat, and I haven't done that yet. But now that I just said that out loud, I'm thinking, wait, 
let this be the year. I might know where some prickly pear fruit is waiting for my and calling my name before this freeze. Anyway, yeah. So that, so you can just rub those glaucids off with a butter knife. They come off really easy. So you're not, and then you just split the thing open and, and suck out the innards. And it's worth doing that because if you're on the dry prairie and it's a hot day or it's a fall day and there's no water around, you could suck the juice out of that fruit and and satisfy your uh, your craving for water. That's for sure because that's yeah. what a cactus is. But uh, another thing folks need to turn themselves on to if they haven't yet is the pads. Uh, prickly pear pads were certainly used as well. And what you were referring to uh, for thickening soups, um, if you cut open a pad and, and you see the juice in there and you touch that juice and rub your fingers together, it's very slimy, mucilaginous, mm. we call that, uh, as a plant compound like aloe vera. Our, our friends from Mexico um, have, have introduced us all to this and certainly more Southwestern tribes uh, in the United States is um, nopales. And nopales are uh, still eaten today. If you go to the uh, grocery store, you'll often see prickly pear cactus pads. Haven't you seen cactus pads in the grocery store before, Stephanie? Uh, I haven't. Uh... Yeah, here, here in Lincoln, where I shop, uh, Super Saver, um, depending on the part of town, they'll always have cactus pads or nopales. Okay. And I, I had a young Mexican kid work for me one summer. So we were chatting about Nepalis. And so he said his favorite thing uh, with cactus pads is a, a popular uh, torta or a sandwich that you would make in Mexico. And that's grilled um, cactus pads. And then you cut them into strips. You put them in, in some good bread uh, with Mexican cheese and, and you melt that together and uh, make basically our version of a grilled cheese sandwich. And uh, oh my, I've made that before. It's really good. So that's so. So you're so you're saying we could essentially make a prickly pear grilled cheese sandwich, right? Out of the out of the pads. So <laughs> now you're now you're all picturing. Wait a minute, but the pads are covered with spines, and you want to choose prickly pear because the the spines are kind of concentrated on the outer ring, and you can literally use the scissors as you're holding it in the pad with the tongs and cut that outer edge, which has mm. most of the spines. You throw them in boiling water for however long the recipe calls for. You pull them out of the boiling water, let them cool, and then you can use a butter knife and those spines just rub right away. And you just mm. basically, so in the store, what you'll see is a pad that's already been cleaned and processed. You know, somebody has done the, the parboiling to get the spines off. Anyway, you want to cook them for a while because that mucilaginous juice comes out of them. And uh, and then it basically tastes like a green bean meets uh, asparagus, I guess. it's. Um, mm. and, and, but again, uh, another way I've read that they were prepared. So we did this. When you have an outdoor fire pit and your fire is starting to go down where you have the white coals, right? You have the white with the red coals and deep. That's when they would often or they would separate those coals. And they would throw the pads right on there, right on the hot coals. And basically they would blacken and, and of course the spines would burn away. And then you pull that out of there and you can rub that black right off of there and then cut those into strips and, and use them in recipes. Man, it is the bomb. Mm, that sounds good. 
Um, that's definitely going to be one. Now, I mean, prickly pear. Uh, is that something that we could truly grow in a suburban garden? Like, what's the kind oh, of uh, what's the kind of garden setting these plants would need? Yeah, not a doubt you can. Uh, I certainly can, and I know or have. Yeah, they're easy to grow here. I think the main thing you need is high and dry. You know, mm. um, like say you say you got it under an eave uh, in a hot, nasty south side of your house, and it's just baking right there because they have beautiful flowers. You just have to be cognizant that, you know, don't trip over that area, whatnot. You know, you just have to be smart about it. And they're easy to reduce down in size. I'll just chop away because the, 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 the grouping of cactus will expand every year, maybe, maybe further than you want it to. And I'll just chop it away with the spade or harvest it. Uh, what, however, I'm getting rid of it because in the spring you want the, to harvest those early pads in the spring for Nopales the plains prickly pear is loaded with spines, so it's often not used for Nepalis, um, or, you know, if, if that makes sense. The the plains prickly pear isn't usually used. Yeah, for that. simply because it has so many spines on it, it's just too difficult to deal with. Versus the 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 big root prickly pear, the spines are more concentrated along the outer rim. And Kay Young has recipes in her Wild Seasons book, too. So, again, high and dry. What I mean by that is a raised bed. Maybe you have a rock garden you're making, and maybe your rock mm. garden's pretty big in size, and you have an area you're devoting to a prickly pear, you know, maybe mm. a two-by-two two or a three-by-three-foot area where, where you're like, you know, that's your space. You do your thing. And and I've made prickly pear fruit jelly before. It's the prettiest jelly you'll ever make. I mean, mm. we're talking a beautiful red color it goes back to not having enough time to do stuff because wouldn't it be cool to have like a modern cookbook with really beautiful vibrant pictures of all the kinds of stuff we could make with native plants it's really incredible right. or someone's gonna you know be inspired uh wink wink to to do this soon and right. start <laughs> doing stuff like this um right. The next plant I wrote down was Saskatoon serviceberry. Um, I was lucky enough to get a tour of, um, I don't know if you know Steve, Steve Roth. Do you know Steve? Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, yes, I do. He, he showed me his garden yesterday and he's got a, a beautiful little uh, pair of June berries uh, that are growing in his garden. And so we got to talking about June berries, but uh, the Saskatoon is Al Malan here on the folia um and it looks like it was a highly valued fruit that would mm -hmm. be able to be harvested um and were eaten fresh but were used sometimes uh by various tribes and pies puddings cakes soups you name it it was used um what do you know about this one yeah uh, uh it's a plant that has a lot of names, you know, service berry is one of them up north in Canada. They still call them Saskatoons and uh, you can even uh. pronounce it like Indian. there's actually, I swear, Saskatchewan uh, was named in honor of the Saskatoon. They still collect them by the bucketfuls up in Canada. Uh, I've seen online, there's a cafe in a little town in North Dakota uh, called the Juneberry Cafe and so they use, uh, you could probably find up to 60 different recipes online using the Juneberry. It is a great substitute for blueberry. 
not because it tastes like a blueberry. It doesn't. It'll never compare to a blueberry flavor, but we have a difficult time growing blueberries and it's just mm -hmm. as versatile as the blueberry in recipes, dried. Um, so Native Americans would dry it and then pound it with buffalo meat and buffalo fat and other fruits to make pemmican. And pemmican was basically the first energy bar, right? Uh, nowadays, mm. we need energy bars. So you can make your own energy bar using June berries as well. And they dry very well and they're tasty, uh, dried. But usually for us, they don't get past the, uh, the other recipe stage. <laughs> There's not enough to go around because my wife, Pat, is a winemaker. And so a lot of my Juneberry harvest now goes to wine. And get this, we've we've harvested up to 20 pounds uh, before, Stephanie, and that's a lot of picking. Wow. And anyway, the best Juneberry is when they turn red to, to this, they're kind of this bluish purple color. And the first time, if I'm at a tree with somebody and I have them try it, I'll say, don't just eat one. You got to eat at least eight at a time, pop them all in your mouth. And that juice, it's just like a fine wine already. It makes a really mm. good wine, by the way. It's a good and, selling um, point. <laughs> my favorite and uh, what I'm known for is my Juneberry rhubarb pie. And But it's not mine. It's Kay Young's recipe. She's got a recipe in Wild Seasons. Uh, yeah, I think it's the best pie, period. Um, it is so good. And it's worth growing for that. So what you had talked about to start was the Saskatoon. Yes. Uh, Amelanchier ulnifolia is an easy shrub for us to grow in the landscape. We should all have six or 10. Uh, it only gets to be around six feet tall and maybe four to five wide. I have seen bigger Saskatoons, but that's a big, happy one. They might end up getting around eight feet. But bottom line is it's a pretty small shrub. Off of two small service berries, Saskatoon service berries, I've harvested enough fruit to make two pies. That's around eight cups, by the way. And uh, that's impressive. Actually, no, it was only one small shrub. It wasn't even two of them. So it's mm -hmm. self-fertile. It you don't need two to pollinate. Uh, regent. So when you're looking for Saskatoons, more than likely you're going to come across one in the store called Regent, um, R-E-G-E-N-T. Regent, um, I'm like, who would name a shrub Regent? What kind of boring name is that? So I actually looked it up and it was selected near the town of Regent, North Dakota. I'm like, oh, okay. So they named it after it's a, it's a place name. Mm. Uh, it's not some fancy cultivar. Maybe it's a little shorter than the straight species, but you know, that's why I always harp on people talking about so-called native ours. You've got to learn the history of that plant. Mm. This plant was found in nature. Um, sometimes it's marketing 101, um, but in this case, Regent definitely wasn't marketing 101 with a name like that. You know what I mean? But anyway, it's a small shrub. Then you can get other service berries, um, June berries, they're also called. I, I prefer the name Juneberry because it just sounds better. I don't know why. And, and it's appropriately named the fruit ripens in June, typically. Um, anyway, there's one called uh, Shadblow service berry. The shad blow is more of a small tree form. This one will grow, oh, 15, 18, up to 18, 18 feet, I'm sorry. And uh, multi-stemmed, um, gorgeous thing, likes to, to grow in the shadow of tall trees. However, you'll get a better fruit production in full sun. 
So it prefers, uh, and I've seen it really happy in full sun, especially growing in a, a wet ditch, a ditch that after a heavy rain, it may have standing water for an hour, but it drains away. Man, are they happy in that semi-moist side of a rain garden. Mm-hmm. You could create a rain garden and have nothing but uh, shadow service berry or even the uh, the uh, ulnifolia in the bottom of it. And they would love that condition because nice. given droughty conditions like we've had, some people have lost service berries. It is it is so worth growing, so easy to grow. The fall color of the shad blow is a pumpkin orange, uh, reddish orange. It's wow. to die for. And uh, shad blow, I'm again being curious. Why would they name a shrub shad blow? Yeah. Well, it uh, or service berry. Well, it blooms typically around the Easter service in certain parts of the country. So, hence the name service berry. Uh, blooming around Easter time. So then they they would uh, recognize that as kind of a, a harbinger of spring. And then there's one on the trade. Autumn Brilliance is often sold and there's other cultivars that are tree form. Those are called apple service berries because they are in the apple family. And if you look at a little service berry fruit, they kind of look like a miniature apple. They don't taste like one, mind you, but there's a little bit of an apple hint. I get that when I taste the fruit. It's hard to describe the flavor when you tell people what they taste like. Um, anyway, so, so autumn brilliance is a good fruit producer, but oftentimes Mm -hmm. autumn brilliance, when you're purchasing one, you have a whole lot of tree in a little bitty pot. So this Mm -hmm. the tree struggles because it's pot bound. And then I've had people, I've had them up and die on people and they're like, what's wrong with my service berry? Was it the drought? And I'm like, well, (laughs) I bet if we dug that thing up, we'd find out it had a Mm -hmm. compromised root system. I've seen it happen Mm -hmm. again and again. Um, That being said, I know a friend that planted an autumn brilliance five years later, you could still move that tree because that root system just did not connect. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and I was touting the service berry and she was all disappointed that it hasn't produced fruit in five years. And, So I said, well, all I can think that we do is we cut that main stem back because I'm seeing sprouts come up from the base and we'll just let it be a multi-stemmed thicket thing. Uh, Fast forward five years later, the thing was like, I don't know, it just shot up out of the ground after that. It was solid. It rooted down. I don't know how that happened, but it did. And we had a nice service berry shrub uh, multi-stemmed after that. So Autumn Brilliance is a good one. Um, Just get the the smallest tree in the largest pot. Smallest tree in the largest pot. And I know that you are a grower. So, you know, this might be a good time to just quickly bring up, you know, if you go to a nursery and and say, you know, someone's inspired by our talk today and they go out and they buy a service berry and they, they pull it out of the pot and sure enough, it's pot bound, which means the roots are basically wrapping circularly around the plant if you leave it like that there's a good chance that that plant is basically going to kill itself because the roots are just going to smother everything and and have nowhere really to go Um, because we want the roots to go down into the ground or you know some things the roots grow more out horizontally we don't want them wrapped around themselves right uh so if someone hypothetically were to go to a nursery they get a service berry they bring it home they take it out of the pot and they see oh crap it's pot bound what is what is the correct way someone could fix this situation before they put put that plant in the ground? 
Oh man, that's the million dollar question, you know, and I know, I know some tree experts that would say, well, you wouldn't. Uh, so if you got a, a, a autumn brilliance, for example, and you see a thicker root, so maybe a root, you, you pull it out of the pot and the roots you can see on the outside of that ball are, are maybe as thick as your pinky um, or, or even as thick as your index finger, right? Sometimes, and it's circling around that pot. I'll take that root back where it started circling and cut it back to where it was coming out and, and turning. You know, we it's called a chain hook where that root is, you know, hooking where it came in contact with the pot. So if you cut it right at that J, then the new roots that developed will, won't be turned because what happens is that root as it's turning around, it gets locked into place. So even by you severing it right there, it's not going to automatically come out from that cut, if that makes sense. Um, basically, it's it's junk, but but sometimes you got to, you know, you got to do what you got to do, right? So if you can cut those bigger roots away uh, at J-hook where it's turning, um, then you're like, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm removing a lot of roots on that plant. And do I, once I cut it, do I pull it away? I, I'll just cut it where it J-hooks and then I'll cut it again. I'm not trying to tear it away from the whole ball because then I'm going to tear away other roots. Um, other research is showing they're literally taking a tree saw and they're sawing the outside of that ball all the way around. And I'm like, ah, oh, that can't be good. I mean, geez, Louise, that, that's running a root system all the way around. So I can't advocate that either. That's why I say get the smallest plant, in the largest pot, because that has the, the best chance of not mm. being compromised. That is a easy way of going about it. I think that's like, that's the most sensible, easy way to, to advise to people. Yeah. Be willing to, to, to buy and plant a, a tree, a shrub smaller. That's what you have to be willing to do because growers, it's, they struggle to get you something two inch caliper tree. It, it, they don't struggle, but it takes time. And then they have to charge you a lot of money. So do you guys, do you guys sell potted service berries there at the Arboretum? We do. And, and it, it's a hot ticket, Stephanie. And, and, it, you know, a lot of times when I get them in, they're, they're gone within a couple of weeks. Right. And people are like, well, why don't you get more? And sometimes it's all I can get. Um, I, you know, let's put it this way. I think I have three left and I'm, I'm amazed. I have three left of the set of the shad blows. Well, I'd imagine after today, those three shad blow are going to be gone. <laughs> I hope so for you guys uh, that you get them sold. But yeah, it's it's kind of cool because we keep talking about Kay Young and I actually still do not own that book. And I just, I have to go get it now. It's ridiculous. We've talked about it so many times and some of the recipes sound really, really cool. Um, so I'm going to have to get that. Um, oh, yeah, start yeah. making this stuff. Next year is going to be the year, I think. I think we are we are starting my bucket list, but hopefully it's not like, Maybe uh, I'll re recall my next year's wish list or something um, instead of bucket list because uh, I just want to start making all this stuff. Sounds so cool. Yeah. And I think, again, like you said, everybody's busy and it's like a lot of people find time to walk the dog that night. But maybe that walking the dog is driving the dog to a wild area that you can go foraging, right, at the same time. Or mm -hmm. maybe your route includes... I think what foraging teaches you is to be observant um, because you wouldn't be looking for this stuff if you weren't foraging it. Right. So you just kind of go through life, you know, 
maybe walk on the dog looking at your dang phone at the same time, right? You know, mm-hmm. that can that can happen rather than checking to see what you can harvest next. Yeah. Uh, and so- well, I mean, gardening kind of does that for us, doesn't it? It kind of teaches you to really stop and really experience and really look and really examine. Yep. It's kind of the slowing down of motions where you're actually able to be in it and feel like you're in it and be like, wait a second, this is a whole new way of experiencing things. So um, I like adding, I like adding the foraging element in. And I mean, I guess I haven't been foraging for food stuff up to this point so much, but I have been going out and harvesting plant material, like seed saving and, you know, going out and cutting some flowers for vases and, uh, and just, also just going out to kind of see, okay, how much pollinator activity is this plant getting? Um, so I think I'm, I'm getting there now. I just need to get out and, and take stuff to cook with instead of keep spending all this outrageous money buying food all the time. When I have plenty of food stuff in my own garden, it's just the fact of matter of learning about it and then actually going out and harvesting it when it's ready. So so I am, I am getting inspired from this. Uh, and if no one else is, then at least, at least we are, you know, you're going to go out and maybe get your, your wine food stuff and, uh, make your wife happy. And, and <laughs> I'm maybe gonna be able to get inspired to go out and do some stuff. So, well, this has been fun. Um, yeah, as long as you want to do a, a plant series with me, I am happy to keep running one because it's exciting stuff. Awesome. So, awesome. Yeah. You bet. Count on it. Well, sounds fun. I had fun today. Thanks for chatting with me again. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. If you need notes on anything mentioned in today's episode, check our website, plant-native-nebraska.captivate.fm for more info. I want you to know you've made this podcast special just by listening in. But if you found real value in today's talk, You can both financially support future episodes and dive deeper into the topics we share by finding us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash plant native Nebraska. Thanks for listening.